this week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Minichi. Hey everyone, this week Jay and I sat down with Jody Porter, who you might know as the guitarist and vocalist from the band Fountains of Wayne. Before that, he was in a band called The Bell Tower in the early 90s with Britta Phillips, later of Luna. They dropped one album, Pop Dropper, in 1992 before Jody joined Fountains of Wayne after they recorded their debut album. He was with them through the rest of the run, but also released some solo records starting in 2008, Close to the Sun, 2013, Month of Mondays, and 2017, Pacifier. Check out our chat with Jody right now. take you back in my history of playing this beast that's totally cool yeah so you're in uh virginia is that I'm right in northern virginia really close to dc just did a show last night in arlington and then we're going to be up on the 8th in brooklyn doing the north uh what's it called the north side festival or something like that so i've assembled a band finally and uh we're geographically challenged but we always seem to kind of get together at one point or another those are great moments. Who are you? Um, who's in the band with you? Uh, two people that were in the last incarnation of the last record I had, which was called Month of Mondays. And uh, that's Joan Chu and Pete Hogan. And more recently, a friend of mine called Cobb Irvin, who's uh, playing drums on a few tracks on the record. I also had Brian from Fountains play on a few. And. Whenever there was no one around, I, I took the duties myself. Gotcha. Hey, Jody. Hey, can you see me or is it? I know it's just an audio event, but I don't know. I feel like I was talking to someone if I could see him. Is that possible? Yeah, something's happening on the left side of the computer. I'm trying to turn my, my video on so hey, you can. Something's happening, but it looks like the shining. All right. Uh, hey. Can you see you. me now? All right. Yeah. Tim, right? That's this is Tim. Yeah, let me get my uh, my spectacles on here. All right. Um, and then uh, Jay, do you even have a video camera on yours? I don't. That's you okay, are, you're so nineteenth uh, century in there. <laughs> Something like that. Give me a second. I'm trying to trying to figure out what this is telling me here. Yeah, I haven't used the okay. uh, the video. I don't even I don't know how this is projecting behind me exactly, but uh, you know, I just feel like I'm actually. You can see my uh, my Gibson clock. And uh, we'll just uh, look at the gentleman on the right <laughs> as a round circle with his uh, photo of his face on it. And you know, yeah, that, that's Jason. His. Go work with his uh with his flaming head. Yeah. <laughs> so you're seeing me and I'm seeing you, right? Yeah, I'm seeing you. 
And uh, Jay is down in uh, Austin, Texas. He's an right. hour behind us, and then I'm in Columbus, Ohio. I got you. Okay. Yeah. I was wondering about the uh, time change because I didn't think you guys were broadcasting out of Ireland or somewhere. <laughs> no, it occasionally gets confusing when we have to do Australia because it depends yeah. on what time of the year. Sometimes it's 12 hours ahead. Sometimes it's like 10 hours and different parts yeah. of the like country. Japan, and, yeah. Like they speak English. <laughs> yeah, that that we uh, we talked with um I think it was Naoko from Shonen Knife. Yeah. And uh yeah, that was a short conversation because I don't speak Japanese and um She actually speaks pretty good English, doesn't she? She does, but she, she kept her conver- she kept her answers short. Yeah. So they were they I tried to ask kind of open ended questions to get a little bit more of a flow, but um I think she was probably on her fifth or sixth interview because she was coming to do a tour of the States last year. Damascus on you, but it's funny you mentioned that band because we go back to like the 91 Reading Festival and that's when I first saw them. I think on that bill, it was either that or Glastonbury, but it was way back in the early 90s with my first band, The Bell Tower. So, you know, we were on right before Nirvana and Iggy Pop headlined it. Like, you know, the first part of my career i was like wow i'm really kind of in the mix right now and the second phase obviously came um i guess sort of to some degree gradually with fountains of wayne but new york in the early 2000s i just got a book the other day that i'm surprised um you know i'm glad i'm not in it because it would have probably made me look a bit like the circus uh jester or something but um yeah it's just like I was lucky enough to be in two really important music scenes um, at the right time, you know. I guess if I were a little older, I could say that I had been through the CBGB 70, you know, seven talking heads and Ramones and all that stuff. But, you know, I got in on the shoegazing and My Bloody Valentine. And, you know, when our band was blowing up, it was Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs and Strokes and and it's kind of just a really good time for music, and I got lucky being there twice, I think. Yeah, I wanted to ask you, you know, in, in looking back through your, your career, you moved to the U.K. from the U.S. Yeah. in the early 90s. So where are you from originally? Well, I grew up in Charleston, South Carolina, of all places, but at, I guess I was, what, second year of college. I was like, this is bunk. And then met a cast of characters who included uh, Liam Neeson and Julia Roberts, of all people, on a movie that was being filmed in Charleston. Kind of got my escape on to get out of there and go to New York. And New York just wasn't really happening. So at at some point, we made a connection with this manager guy in London. Yeah, I mean, the thing started in New York, but it blew up in London, basically. And that was around 1990, I think, that I moved over there.
Yeah, and that in in revisiting for people who aren't familiar the Bell Tower, um, that sound of that band is perfect for going to the UK in the nineties. Um, which is really interesting because I don't I don't think that there was really a maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but there wasn't really a shoegaze scene in the United States, or at least in, in that sort of dreamy pop sound. So were you listening to a lot of UK bands before Absolutely. you moved over there? I didn't even know. That wasn't even happening yet, you know? It's right. like the Walker stuff was really big, and, you know, their audience looked like they were on pogo sticks, I remember. I think we had to support them once. But I didn't go over there with any psychedelic preconceived music notions or anything like that. It just sort of it happened, you know? Right. And all stuff came up around it for some reason. I don't know. It's just it's a timing issue, I guess. But, you know, I was trying to recreate stuff like Tomorrow Never Knows, you know what I mean? And other than that, I liked R.E.M. and a lot of those uh, IRS bands, right? So the replacements were a big influence on me. And I, you know, went over there and just kind of quote shoegazing thing didn't really happen until after we'd been there for almost a year or so well and it's interesting because you know now a lot of those bands have been coming back sort of driver have been back together for a couple years ride is putting out a new record slow jive just put out a new record um in you know going back and listening though that those recordings the album and then there was a some other like an ep and some other stuff those still sound i mean the fidelity and and some of that late 80s early 90s production can sound a little tinny at times but the production on those records is excellent compared to um some of the peers Are, have you thought about or has there been any consideration about doing you know reissues is a big thing now where bands are reissuing their back catalog and that kind of stuff or even doing like expanded editions and 180 gram vinyls that kind of thing have you yeah. uh talked about doing that, anything like that well i'm thinking about doing that with what i'm doing now but to reissue anything that I've done in the past would just be like a step in reverse to me, you know? Gotcha. Yeah. Speaking of, so the new record pacifier that came out this spring, Jay and I have both had a chance to to live with it for uh, a while now. And it's really an interesting, it's your third solo record. And it's interesting because I can hear some of the guitar playing from the bell tower in terms of your, obviously, you know, you mentioned the Beatles, that sort of influence and the, and the psychedelic influence. Um, but then when you mentioned the replacements, that was, I think, on the tip of my tongue and I couldn't quite place it. But there's this very, I don't want to say garagey, but there's a there's a more um, visceral guitar playing on this than in more yeah. straightforward. Maybe it's the lack of delay or or um, some other, you know, it's a, a cleaner tone on some of the stuff. Can you talk a little bit about going into this record? What you're, do you have like, thoughts in terms of I want to make this sort of record or are you just writing songs all the time and then putting together a record at that point? You know what? It's kind of like every two or three years, I just get so bored that I have to start, you know, going and writing and it happens, you know, fairly quickly when it does. And I'm like, shit, I got to find a studio to do this. And, um, you know, it's just kind of like when it happens, it's like putting up the antenna and channeling the moment. Do you work with a band for the for the newest record? I have a band that I've uh, deemed the Berlin Waltz, and we're going to uh, be doing our third gig of all times at um, the Northside Festival on the 8th. 
in Brooklyn. So, so how do you write? Um, are you demoing quite a bit on your own and then bringing the band in? Or, or yeah, all- I play pretty much all the instruments myself, with the exception of a couple of borrowed drummers on this thing. So, you know, when I get the group together, it's like I was saying earlier, it's a bit geographically challenged um, that we, you know, work often, but when we do, it's magical. You know? And yeah, they're, I wouldn't call them a backing band. They're my band. I mean, they're my buds and everything, you know. But as far as the album goes, it's like, uh, you know, nobody was around, so I played everything basically, which I did on the one before too. But I incorporated a few drummers that um, you may have heard of, Brian Young being one of them. Right. The the fabulous fountain that he is, my best friend. (laughs) He plays on the first two tracks, and a guy that I've been working with now um, here in Virginia is Cobb Irvin. And uh, the other two, as I mentioned before, Joan Chu is playing bass in the live band, and Pete Hogan is rhythm guitar. So that's who I'll be working with for, I guess, the majority of the summer. And then the last record that you did um, prior to this one, which was um, a Kickstarter campaign, what's your feeling? You know, we've talked to a lot of artists who have either used Kickstarter or Pledge Music and, and those sorts of campaigns. Um, were you happy with using Kickstarter to make that record? We've heard mixed results from people based on what their expectations were going in and then what the reality was. It was a lot of work at the end, I think, but you know, I had a lot of good friends that dealt with the situation of sending out all that crap. You know, you know it's come to that really. Otherwise you got to go on American Idol or one of these game show talent show type situations and get a shitty record deal with a major label because you're a third runner up or something, you know? So it gives a little bit more uh, driver's seat action. And it gives you a little bit more intimacy with the the people that are putting it on the map with you, you know. Um, I'm kind of all for it, really. I I don't think there's anything wrong with it. It's just like when it comes down, it does get a personal connection going. But there's a lot of mail outs and stuff. But right. I think the forum is really kind of a cool idea. Well, I'd imagine, you know, having started with the Bell Tower and then through Fountains of Wayne and now doing the, the solo stuff, I mean, you've seen the music industry evolve in, you know, massive ways. And um, do you or think that... Un-evolve. Pardon? Or unevolve. Or un- or I guess de-evolve. Um, de-evolve. Better, yeah. I, I'm not sure. Or yeah. Dylan poetic. Um I not find it in Webster's, but it's a good title for a song. Or something. <laughs> there you go. Do you find that having the personal connection, although not having the, I guess the mechanisms of a, of a major label is a bit freeing or is that uh, just sort of a, you know, I've, we've talked to musicians and they didn't get into the, to make music so that they could, you know, put up 500 mailers to the you know local post office that wasn't their goal when they uh, started making music, and it's sort of become a necessity for pretty much the majority of of artists who aren't, you know, pop artists selling, you know, ringtones and whatnot. So, yeah. um, well, it certainly puts more people out there. I think that being 
you know, assigned to a label back in the day when there were labels was kind of like a filter, like a water filter of sorts. And your music was the water, so to speak. And, you know, basically there was less, you know, trait. What's the guy called? Tezande. Uh, Chocolate rain and shit like that, you know, which I really <laughs> like, by the way. But, you know, anybody can go on YouTube and get a billion hits or whatever. But right. 15 minute Andy Warhol kind of situation. Yeah. Um, I thought that the label, especially indie label situation, was a comfortable place for me back in the day. Um, obviously, they all got bought out and everybody ended up on a major. And, then file sharing happened. You know? So, yeah, it's it's like the way you make money now in the music game, if you're in it, is touring. And, you know, you just make records almost like a, they're a flyer or something. Yeah, and that, that's sort of... Um, I remember uh, Mike Watt from Minutemen and various bands. He, I think he even said that in... Uh, there's a, a documentary that he's about the Minutemen called We Jam Akano. And he talks about yeah, how, them, yeah, they, he talks about, he says that, you know, everything is a flyer to get the people to the shows. They say that? Yeah, yeah. Very similar philosophy. If I'm quoting it, I don't think I ever heard that from Mike, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> we're on the same page at least. I want to go back, you know, we like to talk to artists about you know, not only their, you know, current careers and, and what they've been up to, but... um you know, you mentioned growing up in, in South Carolina. I'm curious about where did you get or how did you get into music? Did you have a, like an older sibling or a friend who passed and on records or anything like that? My dad with a, a great record collection. And it started with the likes of Buddy Holly. And, you know, all the, he had all the Zeppelin records and stuff like that. So he was a musician as well. And he also had guitars, which was great for me because... <laughs> I didn't have to go steal one from the music store. But <laughs> I don't know. I answer that question best, and I've done it before, and I don't want to sound hackneyed, but I really feel like it chose me, you know? It was, like, not a conscious decision. And I started so early, it was more like a continuation of a past life. Um, perhaps I was Brian Jones and reincarnate. I was born the same year he died, so it's possible. <laughs> <laughs> What was the first guitar you bought with your own money? I didn't buy it. My dad did. And it was when I was six years old. It was a Fender Mustang for used for a hundred. And he actually said it was $75, but I seem to remember it was like $125. Now, of course the thing is worth like, you know, five grand or whatever. Right. And then a year or two later, I badgered enough to get a Les Paul for my seventh birthday. Seven. That's Paul Deluxe, which I still have. You still have it. Wow. That's very cool. What about amps? What were your first amps? <laughs> I thought I was a badass and could barely lift them with my bass player. We dropped them a few times, but I had a 212 uh, Bandmaster cabinet and a 410 Super Reverb, both blackface and a Bandmaster head on the top. And it was taller than I was, but you know, it was <laughs> at that age, it was kind of like, all right, we got to overcompensate for the fact that we're seven years old and have stacks behind us. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, the bass player had a PV, like TK, whatever it's called. 
we used to make fun of it. But anyway, I had, I had the blackface fender stack behind me. But so what, evidence on my Facebook. What were your first bands? What were those like? Um, okay, well, like I said, it was it started kind of with Buddy Holly. Mm-hmm. That was a ukulele band, right? Before I even had that uh, Fender Mustang at age six, I was playing the uke and trying to hawk tickets to tourists in Charleston, you know, for like 25 cents and stuff. It's really funny to think about as you look back at it. Not much has changed. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm trying to remember where this question was. Oh, just your early, you know, bands and and when it started to get electric i had this band that i had named foreign aid before the age virus came out so it was uh, something that came out of a history book in seventh grade as far as i remember i was like all right that's a band name <laughs> but uh yeah that's when it went electric and we started to do stuff like hendrix and zeppelin and uh and I have to say pretty well for a bunch of midgets at that age, you know. Um, and then I started writing songs. That was around the time I started to write songs. So that band went on uh, almost through high school, you know, I think. And um, it certainly put me on the path. I got, You know, it's like um, George Harrison had said, um, John and Paul had already written all their bad songs. And he had to get a couple on, you know, he had to get up to Revolver to write Tax Man, you know what I mean? So I got all my, you know, I hope kind of fecal material out of the way and uh, learned what works, you know, rather than trying to sound like Squeeze or something, which I never liked that much anyway, or what was Zo Courant, you know, it's just, you know, it's kind of like it drives you and you don't really have the wheel it's kind of like you know this is what you can do this is what you do best and don't try to go outside of the box you know i'm not saying i'm as simpleatic as the ramones or somebody like that who i love but yeah i mean there's some experimentation going on but i know what i do and i'm you know always trying to evolve in some manner but you know it either works or it doesn't usually Lately, it has. I think it's because I started so early. I knew it was tat and could, like, you know, kind of throw away. But yeah, there's definitely some bad songs by everybody that we love. Uh, luckily, none of mine were recorded, as far as I know. Go ahead, Jay. I heard you starting up there. Well, I was just going to say. Um, so you said you 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 performed a lot of the or most of the instruments on the new record. When did you start playing other things than guitar? Well, I started on drums even before I think I had a ukulele, which got me into the guitar. But, you know, like I said, I had a really cool dad, and I think he had stolen most of this uh, band room's worth of shit from Macon, Georgia, where he was at UGA. And uh, coincidentally, he was actually in a folk group that was signed to RCA Records, um, so maybe he bought it. I don't know. I have a feeling he stole it. Anyway, I had a drum kit to work on when I was a kid. And, um, you know, the fascination came through the records that were in the collection, not so much like, you know, this cymbal sounds, you know, loud or whatever, you know, or this ukulele sounds in tune. 
it was like, I want to listen to Buddy Holly. I want to listen to the Beatles and Stones and stuff like that. And that's where I developed my, quote, talent through my ears, not through my fingers so much, you know, or any kind of equipment. That's right. You know, 80% of it is all the ears, I think. Just, just playing to those records, playing drums and guitar to those records? Yeah, you get sort of coherent about even having relative or maybe perfect pitch in some cases just because you've heard those things so many times and you learned them but you listen to them you know that the operative word there is listening and your ears are your instrument so you never took lessons anyway you know it's as important as having six strings in your hand your ears got to be you know very much in tune and then you can start to write songs and stuff like that yeah, did, did you take lessons at any point? No. All self-taught? I'd have to start giving lessons. So if anybody out there in uh, TV land is interested, I'm, uh, I don't know, what would be a good wage for that? How much can you get paid for that? Well, maybe we'll Skype. This is my first Skype. This is my maiden Skype voice, so just so you know. And I had my friends set it up. Um, but maybe I'll give Skype guitar lessons, but to answer your question, no, I never had guitar lessons. I just learned off records. Well, I, we know a drummer who plays in a, uh, you know, a band that's been around for a while and, you know, tours and whatnot. And he does drum lessons. I think Jay, what is what Kelly's tr- guitar lessons? Just drum lessons over Skype. And he does them for like, I think it's like a hundred dollars an hour or something like that. Okay, well, sign me up. I could use the dough for the tab at the bar but long story short i mean i can imagine like you know the reversal you're like playing to a mirror and trying to teach some kid how to play maybe baby by buddy holly just to get him enthused or you know Mm -hmm. that's where i anyway a couple of chords a g d and e you know get you a long way but when you look at it it's like playing into a mirror so i'm like you know how would i somebody on skype Right. <laughs> That's true. So at what point did you sing right away as well, or is that something that came later? I reluctantly have sung through my whole adult life. But, yeah, I, you know, I wanted to emulate uh, That'll Be The Day and, well, you know, some easy-to-play Beatles stuff because they're kind of an elaborate bunch of blokes, aren't they? Um, a lot of stone stuff. So you know, I was kicking that at like age six. I had to hang up. I knew what I was going to do. And my mom said, have something to fall back on. You know, I'll put you through college. I was like, I'm not really that interested in that. But I did take full advantage of the, the music room and learn to play piano in those places before I was even paying tuition. <laughs> I'd break into the uh, practice piano rooms up in the College of Charleston. Good times. I also used to pool hop, just so you know. You, you knew what you wanted to do. You just had to find the way to get it done. So that's, uh, that's a good lesson for the people out there who maybe some of our younger listeners may be uh, questioning uh, what road they should take. And it's like, if you're not willing to break in and do it, then you're, uh, you're not willing to do it, I uh, guess. I made two really good decisions in life. And uh, one of them was not to have any offspring, because if we were having this conversation and my kid was sitting here, I'd be like, don't get into that. You know? <laughs> no. 
the music business I'm talking about. Don't you know? Don't even bother. It's not worth it. It used to be, but uh, you know, the other one was like not becoming a junkie. Right. So there's a word for the wise kids that are listening. Don't do either of those. Don't be in the music business. <laughs> and don't be junk. And I'm curious about the the former, the in terms of the music business. Um, I felt a bad finger moment coming on. Sorry about that. Go back to what you're saying. Uh, no, I was trying to I was trying to place the riff. That was uh, um, no matter what was that. It was about to be. Uh, oh, okay. There for you. I don't have a pick though. It's got that tone, you know. We just pulled this uh, old 335 out of the case. I haven't played in years. And um, I'm thinking about putting it up on auction, like for charity. I'm going to change uh, directions yeah. for a minute. Okay. I, I, in the picture for the um, pledge campaign for yeah. uh, month of uh, Mondays, you're, yeah. you're surrounded by about, I don't know, maybe two dozen guitars. Uh Three dozen, and there was another dozen in storage in New York. But yeah, so those are all yeah. yours. Yeah, and the, the reason that photo exists is because, for insurance purposes, I had to take pictures of them all. Right, so I had to get them all out of the cases. And we said, "Well, we got to take pictures of them. Then we should do it out in natural light." So it was like, "All right, well, wait a minute. There's a tree there." Let's put some guitars up against the tree, and we started taking pictures of it. And then I was like, well, why don't I go get an oriental rug upstairs and sit on it? And the rest is history, I suppose. All right, so... Like I said, there's no less calls than that. No, I'm looking at the picture, and I, don't, and I don't see any. Is there a Desert Island guitar? Is there one of those guitars that, if you know, if the house was on fire, that's, that's the one you'd have to grab? Yeah, where is it? I don't not that this is a video interview or anything, but I could show you if I had. I think it's somewhere else, actually. Though. It's a 63 Jazzmaster. And, oh. uh, it takes a capo like a champ. And, um, you know, all you got to do is maybe string it every six months. And it's just a workhorse. Is that the, um, I'm looking That's at the, the picture. Paper. Is that the... The cream one with the... yeah, we got a white one and the sunburst and the black one. Um, but the white one is really like, I mean, it's just a badass. You know, I could not go to a desert island without the white Jazzmaster. Now, is is that one where you you know, we've heard stories about people picking up Jazzmasters back in the eighties for yeah, two hundred bucks, and now they're worth five grand, six grand. Is that that's is that a similar story? Not so much. I got into Jazz Masters kind of as a late bloomer. I had a six, you know, I had a bunch of sixty strats well before that, and um, I know you're talking about in the Jaguar as well. It used yeah. to be like five hundred bucks in a pawn shop or less. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So nobody really wanted them, and um, you know, it's just I, for some reason that's what everybody was using. Uh, during the phase one shoegaze movement from Kevin Shields to whoever else, Jay Maskus, you know. And um, so I tried one out and I, I really liked it, you know. I didn't really like Strats because Eric Clapton played one. And I'm not a big Clapton guy. So I kind of wanted to bury the Strat, which I did eventually. I kind of 
gave it away. So it sounds like you like a pretty wide range of guitars. What do you do live? How do you how do you decide what you're going to take on tour with you? Oh, well, it depends on what band I'm doing at the moment. And now it's, a, you know, the Jazz Masters is going to make a major uh, tour because I know it'll hold up even, even though it may come back kind of like beat up. But it's got a flight case. <laughs> Um, on Fountains of Wayne stuff, I was usually on Les Pauls and Firebirds and stuff like that. Okay, yeah, I see the, uh, I think there's one, oh, that's a junior, maybe that's a junior in the picture. Trying to... uh, I inherited that from my pop, it's a 57 Les Paul Jr. Nice. Real deal. And Dwayne Allman allegedly, and I do believe my dad, but I think he used to fabricate some stuff. <laughs> like how great I was and stuff, you know, but, um, yeah, that came from, uh, Macon, Georgia bought for $175 in 1957 and Dwayne Allman who, you know, you may know not Greg, (laughs) but Dwayne, Greg, RIP. Sorry. I didn't like your band that much, but Hey, my dad knew all this cats. So it's like Dwayne Allman offered him, uh, an exorbitant amount of money in 1968 or 69 before I came out. And it was for like three grand. And my dad was so nostalgic. He's like, well, this is my first guitar. You know, I know you're going to set it up to play slide on, which he had already expressed. But, you know, um, that's one that'll go to the grave with me for sure. That and the Mustang. Yeah, I think it's go. No. Highest bidder. Do you ever play the Mustang anymore? Nah, but I look at it sometimes and it reminds me of better days before Trump showed up. (laughs) Uh we try to we try to uh, keep this as nonpartisan as possible so that our uh, our listenership doesn't get uh, divided in half. Yeah. <laughs> I'm close to Washington, so if I do lose my mind a little bit, don't blame me for what happens. <laughs> Noted. Um, well, let's talk about on the new record. Maybe we could go through a couple of tracks so that we can talk about. You know, we can play some of the songs. Yeah, yeah, let's um, do that. One of the ones that really caught my ear um, straight out of the gate was uh, Valerie Sometimes. Yeah, um, that's what people like, isn't it? I mean, it's got the hook. That's it's It's got the, you know, that's what catches your ear the first time you hear it. Um, and it's right up front at the top of the record. Um, can you talk a little bit about the writing of that song? Yeah, I can, actually. That's a, one that started the whole thing in forward motion. And it was sort of more like an experiment with GarageBand. Okay. And I have two goddaughters that live in uh, somewhere in Florida. And I was trying to more or less say, listen, you can make something this good because they're musically inclined, right? Um, With this technology, you know, you can blame Apple for killing the music business or you can blame it for bringing me back to be able to write songs, (laughs) Um, GarageBand has always been a catalyst for me to like even take stuff into the studio, wipe the GarageBand files, import it into Pro Tools. But 
you know, your demo is always going to be your best. I, I find with everybody I've ever worked with, including myself, which I've done, um, you can take that stuff because it's all kind of, you know, clicked out and improve on the sounds, but basically use it as a template. And that's what I've been able to do. And that song in particular was just a way to teach my goddaughters that you can actually make something sound pretty cool. You know, you got to buy a module or whatever and actually play the instruments. But, right. you know, it's not like you were using the loops and stuff like that. It was like, stay away from that, if, you know, because <laughs> they play piano and stuff, you know. It's like, we'll actually record it, even if you use the iPad mic, record it and, you know, TikTok it the way it works and uh, make some art. It's better than more. I think it's even better than sex. So how long have you been using GarageBand? I do, yeah. I mean, that's the only way I can forgive uh, file sharing and the fact that nobody of, you know, any interest musically that, you know, has any kind of something to say doesn't get paid to do it, you know. But at least they kind of brought me back into the fold because I thought Pro Tools and all that was going to be like eight track tapes, a sort of trend or something, you know. And I'm not computer savvy. It's like Skype interview, as I said, was my maiden voyage. That sort of a penance for ruining the music business is the fact that GarageBand was invented. And I've used it, you know, it helps me write. I'm into it simple and so that song in particular was just a way to show the girls how you know you can do this you can do that or whatever jay uh were there any songs that you wanted to specifically talk about yeah the first track um it it touches on maybe the i guess the most shoegazy kind of feel from the on the record um anything in particular in terms of how that came together last song I wrote for the record. Ah, okay. Um, I'd written this song called The Last Chapter, which I knew was going to close the record, because that makes sense, doesn't it? But then I had to come up with something for the prequel, which was called In the Beginning, dot, dot, dot. And so the whole thing, I hope, reads sort of like a novel of sorts. Okay. And Brian, you know, me and Brian have been playing together for so fucking long that it's like uh, and washing your hands or something, which I don't do a whole lot of, and unfortunately we don't play enough together. But long story short, it's like riding a bicycle, and um, he plays on that and on Valerie as well. Scott, do you remember? 
Um, Brian played on. Yeah, Brian played on those first two songs. Okay. In the beginning, yeah, sort of shoegazy, I suppose, but and non intentionally. I mean, there's a song in the record before that was intentionally trying to go back to the halogen days of '91, and it's called uh, uh, "Not So Far Away." But other than that, I just do what I do. You know, I'm not trying to fit any genre. Yeah, no, it, it sounds. You know, the guitar-wise, it just has some. Uh, notions that reminded me of that, but it yeah. it still very much sounds like the rest of the record. Um, so who plays who plays drums on the rest of the record? I do, and there's a guy that I um, I don't know if this would be appropriate to say aforementioned, but mentioned previously, called Cobb Irvin, who I'm working with, and hopefully um, getting a record of his out this year. And he's a really brilliant songwriter acoustic drummer and a badass drummer. He's my drummer in the Berlin Wall. So long story short, he's there for me. I'm there for him. That's how it works. And who produced the record? I did. Don't Is play. That, <laughs> do you find that uh, a challenging to, yeah. to produce yourself? It's really no difference in being a producer than being the songwriter, you know? I mean, unless you're Jeff Lynn or somebody. And he's got he's gotten actually kind of more praise than um you know, in the seventies kind of like that sound is like a fucked up George Mark uh George uh, Harrison's record with all that overdubbing of vocal, you know, pads and stuff. But eventually came back into fashion like the Fender Rhodes keyboard. Mm-hmm. You know, but yeah, I produced it um, for better or worse. I'm always fascinated by that people are able to do that because to me it would be such a challenge to know when to when you're done. Do you find that difficult? Do you know uh, when the song is done when you've when you've put all the parts on it that need to be there? It's so easy to do. You must know this because you guys probably have both recorded songs of your own. Mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. You, know, you let it. Or, you know, you let it grow. It's like a fucking weed. You just throw a little water on it and see what happens. Yeah. Yeah, but I think the problem that GarageBand presents is that you can always add one more little track. You can always double something. Like if you're in a studio and you're dealing with 24 tracks or how many tracks, you're really, you know, you're stuck to that board and that limitation. Whereas I can sit down with GarageBand and just like keep noodling, keep adjusting, keep fading things in and out or adding effects and doing that kind of stuff. And I kind of have to just give myself yeah, a deadline. You get back, obviously, you have OCD. <laughs> That's <laughs> well, probably that. true. Yeah, yeah it sounds good. It's like a painting. Don't fucking put you know, white paint over it. Don't spray paint after you've done a beautiful landscape. Uh, just let it lie. It's up. Being a perfectionist. Yeah. I had to learn to do that, you know? I mean, everybody will learn. It's like A, A or something. So do you One think you could have time. could have done that you know, 10, 15 years ago? Were you? No. I think I was way too, like, hip to the, the infrastructure of uh, digital music coming on board 15 years ago. Or maybe 20, maybe 25, even. You know, 
days go by quick, don't they? Yeah, I mean, I was really super psyched not to have vinyl, but I did with the bell tower, but a CD. I was like, that was as far as my fucking imagination went. I was like, I want to make a CD, you know, (laughs) that somebody will put out and pay for it, and they did, you know, generously, obviously. Um, That, you know, it was like trying to, trying to get approval from your peers, basically, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, all right, we all love REM. We like Let's Active. And we'll hear something that sort of like, you like this, you know? And <laughs> they did, but, you know, I ended up in fucking England. And then I got more or less, I wouldn't say, you know, serviceably molested by the British music scene and the music papers. And I mean, I mean, they, they came out blazing like solemnity son or whatever he's called what's his name the disney character anybody know this yosemite sam yeah that's the guy guns are blazing and uh the first gig was reviewed by enemy and melody bank and i was like the next pixies kind of thing because they were all the rage of course we had to grow up in public which really kind of gave me a nervous breakdown on the rock you know it kind of destroyed that group which i'm in some cases, happy and also sad about at the same time. But that could have been that could have been it was before Oasis because they were drinking our beer in, in the bathroom, you know. Uh, but yeah, we could have been an arena band. I just didn't want that lifestyle. We, we've talked about that enemy thing uh, a little bit in the past. So are you saying that the the pressure created by the press there kind of in the end, was yeah, one of the factors that destroyed that was my problem, not theirs. A friend of mine who now I think is like the main guy that I mean, it's called Steve Sutherland. He invented the term grunge. He invented the term the scene that uh, the scene that celebrates itself. I think he may have been in uh, vertically. Yeah, you know, right over there. <laughs> uh, I think he might have been advertedly. Uh, coined the phrase shoegazing as well, which was not a compliment back in the day. Right. It be like a bunch of like polo necked English middle class kids with a lot of expensive parents. Not like the expensive winos, which we'll get to later in this podcast, by the way, kids. But <laughs> um, you know, like, you know, middle class English kids that you know were so shy they looked down their pedals. And God knows they had a lot of them. Is my paddleboard here? I was going to show off my paddleboard. I just had recently reworked it, and I was really surprised with my uh, ability to tech for myself because I haven't had a proper guitar tech for a few years. What, what are you currently uh, housing on your pedal pedalboard? It'd be easier just to take a picture and show you. I don't know what to know about. It all worked. There was a real troubling moment, like about a month ago, when uh, it stopped working, and I was able to troubleshoot it. <laughs> I didn't need Ricky Ramon, who we talked about prior, and I felt pretty good about that. He all ended up being a guitar tech. On the new record, I want to ask two questions. One, what was the song that was the most challenging either to write or to record? 
it wasn't hard to record or it wasn't challenging, but I really had to use some um, physical strength not to put an electric guitar on it. And it's the last song on the record called The Last Chapter, which I talked about briefly. Right. It's like, it's mostly organ. And I don't play keyboards very well, but I did that day. <laughs> and that's what you're hearing. And the acoustic, there's a, like one acoustic guitar that comes in on um, the second chorus. And it doesn't really stick around for long, sort of like a bumblebee, you know. Yeah, but that's a it's a cool different vibe to end the record. So I like that song a lot, just because it's not typical. This is the last Either on this record or, or if you want to point to a previous record, have you had, we've talked to people who've had experiences where they've sat down to write a song, something was in their head, and it just poured yeah. out in a matter of like 20 minutes. Something just completely came out. Do you have yeah. any experiences like that with either this record or previous ones? Well, let's go back to Fountains of Wayne just for a minute. Between me and Adam, we made that um, record called Welcome Interstate Managers. Right. And there's a song in there called Super Collider. I was talking to my friends earlier about this for some reason. I don't know why I came up, but I did. Yeah, people think it's Oasis, but it was before Oasis. So not going to be Oasis, but you know, Chris has got that raspy growl in his voice, and I'm doing all this backward slide shit. You know, I think that that was a happy accident. You know, that's the beauty of like recording music, not just writing it, because the people that come in where it's all charted or um, mathematical, never come up with anything that sounds good, I don't think. I know, I know I ever never have. But that song in particular, I think, kind of defines what I wanted to bring to the group. And I got a really nice, um, not monetary, but at least um, audible phone call from the author himself. <laughs> and... Um, you really liked what I did to it. And that's sort of what was going on in England in the early 90s. Super glad. You know, he's just so, he like 10 years after we started that movement. But I like that song a lot. Well, cool. That's that's also, um, that, that's not a record that Jane and I reviewed because it was a 2000s, but that's a song that I enjoyed off that record. We actually reviewed the first Fountains of Wayne record years ago um, yeah. from. Uh, when did that come out? Like ninety six or so, I think. For that, I wasn't even involved in that. Right, and so I was. I was curious. So you knew Adam previously before Adam was the Bell Tower for you know a few minutes. Okay. Um, I didn't want to work because I was having a fucking panic attack or something. 
know, <laughs> it's funny to look back on, but being in Palenque Wayne was a real pleasure because that, you know, you had good management, you had a tour manager. All you had to do is get out of your drawer on the tour bus and check into your hotel or not, you know, <laughs> sometimes you'd stay on the bus. Well, we're getting close to our, um, the hour mark here and we like to keep our, our episodes about an hour. Yeah, so and I started like partying now. Right? So you've got the, uh, you've got the show coming up. You mentioned, um, yeah. and then what are the plans for the summer? More shows? I think we'll probably do more shows if people want to see it, you know? I mean, I'm not going to go out there and be a prostitute over this shit. But at the same time, I do have it in my blood where I have to play music, you know? It's not like for a career anymore. It's because you got the love of music in your blood. And I think a lot of people are, are doing that now. And even Dave Grohl has had to stop having five tour buses. He's had to scale down to three, you know? Right. So it's a sign of the times, as Prince might have said once. The record, Pacifier, people can buy that digitally through a couple different places like CD Baby. And then also yeah. it's available streaming on places like Spotify. Are there plans for a physical release at some point? Yeah, we're probably going to do vinyl, but we're really lazy about it. You know, the record only came out last March, right? Right. I don't know. So with that said, you know, we might give you some 180 grain if you're up for paying $25 for it or something. But <laughs> I don't want to rip anybody off, man. Just steal it. As long as you hear it, that's all I you know, care about. <laughs> well, that's, I guess that's a good way to, to look at it. Yeah. Jay and I, you know, we kind of go back and forth. I'm, I'm fine with either owning, you know, a piece of vinyl or a CD or streaming it or, or what have you, or buying MP3s. It's just a matter of getting the, music out there is ultimately all they really care about. Um, but it is nice sometimes to hold the piece of vinyl or, or the CD in your hand and look through the liner notes. And um, I got my buddy Scott back here sitting in the background. Hi, guys. Hey, Scott. Hey, Scott. <laughs> you heard that, I think. We're just going to jam, probably, in the minute, aren't we? I, I am not playing. Let's start now. That's <laughs> what we do. But You want to uh, take us out with some riffing? Yeah, what, what do you want to hear? Uh, how about you, you, Skelter? You, you, you mentioned the expensive winos. Pick, by the way, I said that earlier in the interview. You can get. Can you give us some Keith Richards? you get that's that's fine with us that was more <laughs> they needed money first that, that's more than we've ever gotten before so yeah i'm gonna uh, <laughs> buy alvin klein for just playing that riff <laughs> well, well i think we have to pay the royalty on that for the uh, uh for our well, free don't podcast air it. Don't air it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll make it a sequel we'll make it a bonus track a hidden track at the end of it so they won't know all right jay do you have anything last anything else you want to uh ask before we get off no, it's been fun. Thanks for the uh, some of your time tonight. And uh, people should go to follow you on the Twitter at uh, Jody Porter. It's better to go to the Facebook page. Or Facebook. Okay. I don't think we can sell any product from that, but I'm not trying to do that. I don't give a fuck, you know. 
It's like, just listen to the goddamn album. I don't give a fuck. Yeah, head on over to CD Baby, Spotify, other places to listen to the record, folks. And um, all right, thanks for spending some of your Sunday Sunday evening with us, Jody. I'm glad I made it this far. All right, and uh, that's it. We're out. It was nice talking to you. All right, you too. Cheers, my dears. Thanks for listening. To support the podcast, visit www patreon.com forward slash dig me out and become a monthly subscriber or request a review at www.digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages, as well as our merchandise store at zazzle.com. Stay low.